You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. It's Wednesday the 27th of July. You find me once again at Goodwood, the second day of the Qatar Goodwood Festival, and we will be reflecting on a wonderful first day, the victory of Kiprios in the Goodwood Cup, and so much more, and looking ahead to Baid, the world's best horse, this afternoon in due course. But first, a really important news story has broken overnight. It was broken by Matt Lawton, the chief sports writer for The Times. It was followed up in The Telegraph by Marcus Armitage uh, and by Tom Morgan. And it concerns the uh, re-emergence, if you like, of Peter Saville, the man who for six years around the turn of the millennium was the chairman of the British Horse Racing Board, now the British Horse Racing Authority. He has resurfaced. He has gathered around him, somewhat informally, a group of racing's power brokers and has formulated a plan for the restructuring of British racing and the premierization of the best parts of the sport with the idea that you put the money there and the rest really will will look after itself in a bid in part to arrest what he describes and what his his work describes as the drain of good class racehorses from britain and the lack of competitiveness in some of those better races peter savile joins me now peter what have you been doing Well, over the last few months, I've met with a number of industry heavyweights from across the industry uh, to to get their perspective on a number of issues that are facing uh, British race. And as a result of that, we've put together a letter to the BHA with outline principles that we think they should take forward into their upcoming strategy review, which is going to start around August-September time. Uh, And those people are... uh, people, as I say, who are heavyweights in the industry um, across the whole spectrum. So we're talking owners, trainers, breeders, um, race courses, betting industry. Uh, And so it was a a very uh, good cross-section of people who felt that these principles were worth putting forward to BHA. And it's now up to them. I I have no, no role in the industry at all. And decisions will be made by the BHA with the other sectors of the industry and that's the right uh, process so as far as I'm concerned I've, I've put that forward and it's now up to the industry to decide what they want to do and, and what other ideas there may be um, for dealing with the problems that face the industry. So I know you don't want to say specifically who the people are, but this is a, an informal collection of people that you went round canvassing. Um, what, what gave you the impetus to do that? Well, I just felt that it needed to come from a, not just one sector of the industry. It needed to, to have some general support from across the industry. And um, I've kept the BHA involved all along uh, with those discussions and where they were going and, and what sort of direction and what sort of progress, um, because I felt that was appropriate. And um, as I say, the, um, the, the people involved are, are key players in the industry. Uh, not everybody, obviously, you can 
didn't talk to, but um, I've talked to as many of the key people as I possibly could. And um, I felt that there was a huge amount of general support. And now, as I say, it's up to the BHA to take those forward because they do have a strategy review coming, so it's perfect timing to put something to them. All right, what's the thrust? What's your thrust? Well, looking at the problems, I mean, obviously, everybody mentions prize money. And although British prize money has gone up, uh, to the point where in 2022 it's going to be 170 million which will be a record the problem is that all other countries have gone up a, a lot faster than ours particularly in america where betting uh, is now off, off track is now legalized so the the the, the, there's a general problem with prize money, but it's actually been exacerbated because now our horses are not racing for the sort of prize money that they're worth. And the real problem, we have two real problems. One is field sizes, which I'll come on to. The other one is basically a horse drain, or it's a loss of horses at the top end. And that's been caused by two things. First of all, we lost some major owners in the last three years from Judmont, Chiefly Park, uh, Shadwell uh, and King Power. So between 2019 and 2021, those owners are owning 20% less runners than they did in 2019. And the situation is going to get considerably worse in 2022 with those particular owners. But the bigger problem is that now those horses that are rated in the sort of 80 to, to 85 range are getting offers of up to 200 to 250,000 pounds to go off to America, run straight off the plane and win maidens that are worth $100,000. So the, the, the re reduction in the number of, of horses at the top end has become quite dramatic. Uh, and when you look at the statistics, BHA have put out a, a, an equine drain um, review recently and every single statistic shows an accelerating departure of horses rated 85 and up. And that's the problem that we have to, to deal with. If, if all the top footballers were leaving the Premier League and going off to Spain or, or Italy, um, the Premier League would have far less appeal to people uh, the media rights would become far less valuable and that's the sort of equivalent that we've got our top horses are disappearing faster than we can do anything about at the moment and we have to do something about that so what are you going to do well the the, the 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 problem that's linked to that is one of field sizes um everybody is identifying that our field sizes are down and we have to solve both of those problems because um uh, if we don't, uh, British racing is just going to go further and further downhill. Um, as far as the horse train is concerned, we, we've got to give considerably more prize money at the top end. We've got to find a way to get more prize money to the horses that are worth a lot more than they were worth previously. And it's a, a, a racehorse is an asset, and if that asset is worth quarter of a million, then you've got to have a return on that asset that makes some sort of sense. Because if not, you're going to actually sell that asset and move on and do something else with your money. So while you're, while you're racing for prize money, the net at the top end in many cases is no more than seven or eight thousand pounds a race net to the owner after all his uh, payments to the trainer and the jockey and so on, and his share of prize money. 
you're probably going to have to win four of those races just to cover your training costs. So there you are sitting with an asset worth a quarter of a million and you're not actually getting any return on it at all. You're probably still actually losing money. So that, has, that equation has to reverse and we have to get more prize money at the top end so that the return to the owner with a horse worth that sort of money is far greater. And um, unless we do that, um, we're going to be in serious problems with, uh, with us being still regarded as the best Sure, I, I understand the problems. You've articulated them very well. What are the solutions then? What are the solutions? How do you go about doing this? You talk about premierization. Is that Does that fundamentally mean putting all the resources that the sport can into the very best racing and letting the rest look after itself? Well, we need to get the best horses racing against each other uh, and racing on races, on, in races that are on terrestrial television. And we have a lot of the good horses racing all around the country during the week where they're not on terrestrial television and they're racing for uh, prize money in some cases that is uh, hasn't gone up for, for something like seven years. The minimum values in class one, two and three haven't been raised since 2015. So we have to raise the amount of money that race courses need to put up for the better horses. Um, and we have to get the field sizes right because people bet more uh, on the better and the bigger field sizes. And at the moment, our field sizes are actually not in a structure that any other racing country has. Apart from the real top end of uh, heritage handicaps and open handicaps, the handicaps for horses rated 80 to 100 are down around the average of seven, whereas the handicaps for the horses right at the bottom are up around 12. So you have to get your better field sizes at the end of at the top end of racing because that's where the greater betting turnover goes and what that means is we need to reduce the number of races at the top end and put on more races down at the bottom end and as you put on fewer races at the top end automatically the prize money will be divided between fewer races to start with and at the bottom end the people owning horses down at the bottom end will be running in smaller field sizes and actually will it, it will be good for them because they'll have more races in which to run their horses. But they'll be running for peanuts, right? So the people down the bottom will be running for nothing and all the money will be going to the, to the, the elite. They, they certainly shouldn't be running for, for less than they're running for now. But they'll be running for far, far more prize money because there'll be more races for them to actually go and win. And they will be easier to win because instead of running in fields of 15, 16, uh -huh. and sometimes getting balloted out, they'll be running in field sizes more of 10. This isn't about fixture reduction. This is simply about restructuring. Absolutely. I mean, we need to level up field sizes so that we have the right field sizes in the right class of races. And when we did the analysis of that, we find that you don't need to reduce fixtures at all. You just need to level up the field sizes in the different classes of races. And that means fewer races at the top and more races down at the bottom. Are smaller race courses going to go out of business because of this? If all the, if all the sports resource is diverted to the, to the bigger race courses, how do the smaller operators survive? Well, we're suggesting that the smaller race courses should have opportunities to put on good class races as well. And that they can take their resources and put them all together and hopefully put them on a terrestri terrestrially 
televised race meeting um, on on a Sunday, for instance, we're looking to we think that there should be more top end quality racing on a Sunday rather than the bouncy castle day that race, Sunday racing has become. But but Peter, haven't we haven't we tried this? Haven't we tried Sunday? And and there just isn't an appetite for the public to go racing on Sunday or necessarily to watch it. Well, all the evidence shows from the betting industry that, that they provided us with and from the levy board that they actually feel that Sunday is the best and biggest opportunity for uh, us to develop top-class racing, not just ordinary racing, but top-class racing and put it on on Sunday. That's what happens in Ireland, that's what happens in France, and for some reason it's never happened in England. So we may, you know, maybe we should run fewer fixtures on Sunday, but they should be quality fixtures. Uh, with quality horses and the evidence is that the betting turnover will be greater far greater than it is at the moment as long as it's on terrestrial television but do we want to clash with france and ireland in terms of the pattern isn't, isn't the european pattern there for a reason it's not just pattern races i think it's it's good class racing top class handicaps um and of course we want to clash with Ireland if, if it's a competition, we're in competition with all these nations we can't just sit back and say well they're already there so we don't want to be if there's an opportunity for us we should be there too I want to drill down into this drain of, of racehorses internationally um, your figures, your data that you, you've compiled um, pretty forensically shows that, that numbers of horses going to say the United States and Hong Kong haven't really changed all that much over the last few years. Where the massive growth area of, of, of horses leaving the country is, is the Middle East, Dubai, um, uh, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. So, so th but these horses are being, are being bought to effectively populate an entire racing season rather than because they are attractive to, a, to another nation to, to race it in their races. That's not going to stop, is it? If if Saudi Arabia and Bahrain need to come and buy a whole ton of horses to populate their season, they're always going to pay over the odds. Well, maybe they will, but the owners will be less willing to part with those horses if they're getting the returns that they ought to be getting for the value of their assets in the UK. But if and 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 to to the to the point of a, a, a territory like Hong Kong, we're getting reports of, of Royal Ascot winners making a million and a half. Uh, surely, no amount of added prize money is going to to mitigate against that. Well, I don't think you're you're ever going to stop the horse train as long as we have the best horses. And the evidence is that we do have the best horses because horses at the top end of handicaps and group three winners and group two winners appear to be able to go to australia and america and win group ones so we're clearly producing the best quality horses which is connected very very much to our breeding industry and shows that we have the breeding uh, talents and the and the stallions uh, that can produce top class horses the trouble is that when your stallion fees ultimately can be greater in another country because their prize money is so much greater then you start to lose the stallions as well i'm quite interested in your i'm quite interested in your view of the bha now as things stand new chairman joe somarez smith relatively recent chief executive julie harrington you were chairman of the organization that was the forerunner of the bhb for for six years it strikes me that 
in trying to create a, a Premier League or, or to premierize racing and to very strictly regulate where those fixtures are through the calendar between Guineas Day and Champions Day, you're actually trying to give the BHA more power. You're saying to them, please regulate, please, please make, make our sport more efficient. To what extent do you think the race courses are going to buy into that? Well, ho hopefully they will. You know, they, they, they need to be concerned about the quality of British racing and what is happening in British racing because they're dependent on horses running on their racetracks. And unless they have a, a vision for the sport in general, then ultimately all that will happen is it will gradually start to, to uh, uh, disintegrate and we become a third-rate racing nation. At the moment, we have the finest racing in the world. We have apparently the finest horses or many of the finest horses in the world. What we don't have is the finest races in terms of prize money. And we have to do that. And we, ha we have to change that. And we have to start to get the structure right. Where, when the Premier League started in football, the Premier League didn't have the billions that it has now, but it got the structure right. And when it gets, when you get the structure right, then you can start to benefit from that. And so we do need to, in, in my view, identify our best product. We all know the quality of Royal Ascot and um, Good, uh, the Goodwood Festival. But I think we need to bring more of those fixtures into an identifiable brand like all other sports have done in terms of identifying what their premier uh, level of their sport is and create that as a brand and market it and market it worldwide. And there are opportunities there, both in terms of international betting uh, to actually do that. Uh, one of our big opportunities, you know, we see the three big opportunities as the expansion of, of terrestrial television, um, which has been a big success in the last few years with ITV. We want to see more uh, races on terrestrial television, and when we do, we see greatly enhanced betting turnover as a result. We want to see the expansion of the Whirlpool um, um, betting around the world. We have 17 fixtures. We need to make sure we have good field sizes on those world pool races, otherwise they won't look to us to expand the number of fixtures that we have. But the, the, the betting turnover in world pool is um, enormous and is generating a considerable income for British racing. And finally, we need to um, uh, look at trying to get the levy structure But is that likely anytime soon, given the recent correspondence or the most recent correspondence between the BHA and government that we were witness to around about 18 months ago when the, the, the Secretary of State wrote to the then chair of the BHA, Anna-Marie Phelps, and said, not for the moment, thanks, we'll, we'll call you when we're ready to, to, to have a review in, into the levy? Well, I'm told that it's making progress and um, the amount of progress that's being made, I don't know personally because I'm not personally involved in that and that's not an area that we've looked at. We felt that that was appropriate to be, be, be uh, handled and developed by the BHA. But it's clearly an opportunity and I'm told that there is progress being made. 
All these plans are at the behest, first, of, of government and their, and their willingness to, to have a look at the levy and, and, and generate more money in that respect. And secondly, as you've mentioned, and you've made big mention of, of terrestrial television, if ITV walked away from the sport tomorrow for whatever reason, if they got a more attractive sport or, or they, they weren't getting bookmaker advertising or the government legislated against bookmaker advertising, wouldn't that undermine this whole process? Well, it could do, but the word is that ITV are very satisfied with the uh, with, with racing as a sport that they, they cover and are even looking to expand that coverage, which is what we're hoping will happen. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of risks for this industry at the moment. The gambling review is obviously a risk. Attendances have appeared to be down recently at the major courses and the major festivals. Uh, online turnover is apparently being affected by the um, uh, the affordability checks. So there are there are risks and there are uh, issues that racing has to face. But the bottom line is there is a strategy review as to what racing should do, and we've fed some ideas into that, uh, which we think DHA should consider along with the other stakeholders in the industry. And that's what I've seen as as the way in which I could help over the last few months. You, 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 you must have had a, Peter. You must have had a steer from the BHA, from from Joe Somera Smith, or from Julie Harrington, or, or others. You must have had a steer as to how this is received, or or how, or whether they're aligned to your viewpoint. Well, I haven't no, because I only sent the letter to them on Monday, and they obviously will have to take that into the review with the other with the other stakeholders, and it'll be up to them to all sit down around the table and decide what, what is the way forward for British racing. But we feel like we've put some good ideas, but hopefully we'll, we'll get some traction and and, uh, and help solve the problems of the industry that we think we've identified fairly clearly as to what those are. How do you think the Racecourse Association and the ROA or, or the or the Thoroughbred Group, uh, as they are now, the the other members of the the tripartite um, uh, governing um, structure of British racing, how do you think that they're going to take to this? Well, we've we've looked at that and we've looked at both on the racecourse side and also on the owning side, and we feel that there are benefits both for the. Uh, larger race courses and also the smaller race courses and likewise for the larger owners and also for the smaller owners because as i say on the smaller owner side there should be more opportunities available for them to run their horses which means that in total they're racing for more prize money so likewise where where we believe that the smaller race courses should have the opportunity to put on top class racing on sundays where if it's on terrestrial television, the opportunity for income uh, generation for them from betting is considerably enhanced. So we've tried to, to put forward ideas that we think both ends of the race course and also the, the horseman side uh, can get behind. And I'll, I'll end where we started. I know you don't want to give away names of who's on this on this working group, but if I were to say the most senior trainers in the land, the most senior racecourses in the land, um, the key broadcasters, would I be would I be in the right ballpark? Well, the the, the, the group was fluid. In other words, we talked at times. I talked at times to some people in a small group, and then others in a small group, and then other people joined. But it was a pretty wide selection of uh, of people from across the industry, from both bookmaking racecourses. Uh, horsemen and um, uh, broadcasters, so uh, media rights holders. So um, 
the fact that we've got as much support for those general principles, I think, speaks well and, and bodes well for the very important discussions that are going to take place in the next few months. One, one thing finally struck me, Peter. In, during COVID, we managed to keep all, just about, keep all the British racecourses solvent and running. Um, is a slightly more Darwinian approach to uh, to our racing likely, as as the then chief executive Paul Bitar predicted to me eleven years ago, uh, to see certain smaller independent racecourses go to the wall? I don't think that will happen. I think the ones that suffered during COVID were the larger racecourses, far more than the smaller racecourses. Um, you know, I own a, a small racecourse myself, and we came out a lot better out of COVID than. Uh, than major racecourses who depend far more on attendance and corporate hospitality than, than we do at Plumpton. So I don't see that I don't see any racecourses needing to, to go out of business. If we were proposing the cutting back of fixtures, uh, that might be a different story, but we're not. We believe that the same number of fixtures can take place. The, the main overhaul that has to take place is actually the race program to get the right number of races with the right field sizes all the way down the system from class one down to class five and six. Uh, Peter Sowell, thanks so much for talking for me. Okay, thanks. Well, lots to chew over there from Peter Savile. Lee Mosthead, senior writer from the Racing Post, is with me today. Um, yeah, Lee, listen, we could talk an hour, hour and a half, two hours about this, but how's it going to go down, do you think, out there in the racing village, the idea that you need to, you need to really um, put your resource into the top end? Well, of course, the thing is, the racing village isn't really one village. It's a village that's made up of various different conurbations. All the hamlets, yeah. Yeah, and they have different views on what the sport's priorities would be. If you are someone who competes at the top end, if you are a race course that stages meetings at the top end, I think you would say this is entirely logical. And I think, to be honest as well, Nick, most observers and fans of the sport would probably agree on the basis that people become interested in a sport because of what takes place at the top end of the sport. That's generally what happens. Um, people will become fascinated by horse racing because of days like this, the idea of seeing Bayid at Goodwood, as opposed to a day of Class 5 and 6 races at a lower-end venue. So it's entirely logical. Where the issue will, I think, become controversial is if those who compete at the grassroots of the sport believe that they are being left behind. And I think the advocates of this plan will have to be very clear in saying, as Adam Waterworth has to me today, that they are confident that by focusing on the top end, everybody benefits because you have a series of trickle-down effects that means if the sport at the top is doing better, the sport all the way down that pyramid should do better as well. And there is logic in that. And, and for so long, the sport has been has been bottom-fed and has, has relied upon um, really pushing resource into Class 5 and Class 6 races. Yeah, I pose a lot of questions to Peter Savile there about whether smaller race courses could, could survive. It'll be interesting to see whether his theory that they will is borne out if they are, in a sense, shackle-free to do what they want. Whether BHA are required is to, is to more sort of heavily marshal those top-end Premier fixtures. And giving more power to the BHA is in, important. I think it's really important. And for me, that is a key part of this this agenda if you like um, I've been involved in a, in a couple of BHA uh, committees racing group and more recently the quality jumps review group 
and part of what what's all that's central to that plan is dependent really on race courses backing what's in the in the proposals and sometimes making sacrifices and saying that we're going to work for the for the whole for the for the greater good of the sport now getting them to do that has not always been easy if they can do that uh, within this project then it would be for the greater good of the sport but for that to happen the BHA has to have more control and has to be able to say to racecourses sometimes you will do this not we would all we would really like you to do this if you, if you didn't mind we are competing against a record amount of noise today here at Goodwood with some fairly serious subject matter the final point I wanted to pick up on was the levy reform now this is yeah, this has hit the buffers a few times and I put it to Peter Saville that 18 months ago Anna-Marie Phelps was told by the then Secretary of State thanks but, but no thanks uh, it, it sounds from what Saville was saying as though he thinks that the current BHA chair might be, get, might be having a bit, bit more luck with government well let's hope that he's right um, 2024 which ironically is also the time when this, this new proposal is meant to kick in 2024 is when the government is due to review the levy. Now, there have been hopes that the government would bring that forward. I suppose we're working against a wider backdrop of massive confusion in government in general. You know, you only have to look at the gambling review white paper. And what on earth are we going to see that with changes in government at the moment? But if Peter is right, um, and if Joe Sormer Smith is having success with government and maybe accelerating the process, then that would be great news for sport. The, the hints I've been having is that there was likely more uh, chance of the government agreeing to plans to bring in uh, uh, international uh, bets into the into levy as opposed to the, the, the turnover. But if, if, if the sport can succeed in turning the levy from a growth, growth profit system to a turnover system, then that should, in theory, be a big financial win. Well, let's have a chat about the extraordinary Goodwood Cup yesterday and the victory of Kiprios over Stradivarius, Trushan and Coltrane, all of whom added rather a lot to what was a, a very special race. Uh, Lee, your immediate thoughts as they, as they crossed the line, what was going through your head? Well, I was watching the race from the, the paddock, Nick, stood very close to Bjorn Nielsen. So I was watching him watching the race to an extent. And the first thing I would say is that Bjorn Nielsen is a remarkably relaxed man as he watched the horse race, unlike his, his entourage, friends and family behind him who were, who were going crazy. Um, I thought that we had a, a fantastic horse race, first and foremost. We had the, the, the best three horses filling the first three places. And I thought it was pretty much a perfect outcome in the sense that Kiprios, who'd won the Gold Cup, confirmed that form, although he's probably horse now with a, a sense of paranoia and that nobody's talking about him still. We had Stradivarius... Well, yeah, Fiona Craig's interview on this podcast two days ago. It's only more grist to her mill, isn't I'm it? I'm afraid it is. I'm afraid it is because, once again, Stradivarius was the horse that people were really watching. Um, I thought he was going to win the race. I looked from the angle that I saw on TV that it seemed set to win the race. I think Simon Holt thought he was going to win the race with his commentary. was getting very excited, understandably so. But in, in a sense, it was the perfect outcome because he's run a race that means we get to see more of him and Frankie de Tori wasn't really embarrassed because the horse has been beaten. Um, and Trushan ran a fantastic race in third. I thought what was, again, the, 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 the big theme running through it all again was, was Stradivarius and Frankie and Bjorn Nielsen and John Gosden. And I have to say, Nick, I had been 
quite cynical perhaps about the way this had been presented to us this idea that it was a mutual agreement that Frank Dottori wouldn't ride this horse because he didn't want to ride this horse on this occasion but anyone who saw the scenes in the paddock beforehand I, I was very close by Frankie and Atseni and John Goss and Bjorn Nielsen were all getting on really well there was laughter there was handshakes between Frankie and and at Senny, and it did look maybe on this occasion Frankie had decided it might not be a bad idea if I didn't ride the horse this time and you know I, I think he, he probably would have walked away from the day thinking that went as well as it could have gone for me So here's the puzzle Lee Kiprios is a brilliant young stayer a brilliant young stayer Trushan is a sublime animal might not have had his conditions ideally to suit probably avoid decent grounding next time but still run great did, did Stradivarius run close to a career best in defeat? <laughs> well, we might have him for two more years based on that. Yeah, I think he's run an excellent race. Um, is, th- is he not just getting a bit cute as he's getting older? Is he not just getting cuter? And that's why Frankie's been smuggling him around in the races, to try and bop his head on the line. Well, potentially. I mean, Bjorn Nielsen kept coming out of this line afterwards how it, he's a horse who just wants to fight and wants to win. And they did point out that being far apart from Kipras in the closing stages didn't help him but yeah I think you can argue he has run very very close to his best and ironically once again the race hasn't actually panned out for him as they turn down from the back straight on that sort of mini full straight that leads him into the home straight at Goodwood he was in a perfect position and in fact Bjorn Nielsen remarked he was in a perfect position but then Hollydor swamped him on the outside suddenly he had no daylight now had the cutaway that's been here for the first time this week at a glorious meeting not been not been present there's a fair chance that Stradivarius would have been locked away all the way up the home straight and we would have had one heck of a, a row afterwards as it turned out because of the cutaway he got daylight he had too much daylight he had too much daylight uh, how do you solve a problem like Stradivarius yeah um, 20 time winner 4 time Goodwood Cup winner and 3 time Gold Cup winner absolutely but it was great drama and I, 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 the, the way I presented it in the post today was it this was, was a happy defeat mm. you know after the Gold Cup we had all those uncomfortable scenes between Dottori and John Gosling and Bjorn Nielsen on this occasion they, they were full of smiles I think partly because they knew the horse was still a very, very good stayer, and they still have more fun to have to have with him. What price Dottori gets back on for the Lonsdale? Well, I asked Bjorn Nielsen that very question about two minutes after the race. His thinking at the time was that I'm not sure this necessarily um, is flattering of Frankie. He said that, well, York is easier for Frankie to ride because it's a long, wide open home straight and it's not as easy to get a horse into, into a pocket. At the same time, that said he did nothing wrong on the horse yesterday, so would he want to take him off? So, it's, my brain hurts. It's going to be tricky. My brain hurts. Now. My, my my guess is that probably at Senny will keep the ride, but equally, if they thought that that was likely to be Stradivarius's final race, they might think, well, you're probably going to have four or five runners in the Lonsdale Cup. Tradition at York, they turn off the home bend and they race at the centre of the track. It would be hard to get into a pocket at, at, at York. They might think, let's put him bow out under Frankie, but. It's a discussion that I think going into yesterday we weren't even expecting would be had because I think we did think yesterday would likely be his final race, but it won't be. Irish ledger for Kiprios, autumn campaign for Trushan. The likelihood is these three horses won't ever run in the same race again. Yeah. Unless it's this one next year. There's a fair chance, isn't it? Because there's no way uh, Stradivarius, even if he was racing still, would go to Champions Day again. They know that just doesn't work for him. Uh, yeah, Trushan would go to Champions Day. 
Kiprios after the Irish Atlantic, you'd imagine he might also go on to Ascot. But yes, you're right, Nick. Getting those three together again might never happen. But what a heck, what a race we had when it did happen. A couple of other big results yesterday. One was Marban for Charlie Fellows. You felt that he really needed that win. That was a very important win for him. Yeah, I was struck by how important he felt it was. Um, Charlie was speaking afterwards about how he'd had a very difficult first half of the season, much more difficult than I think we maybe realised. He'd had a, a high-profile horse, for a hot sack in a stable. He had another good horse, had been sidelined for the, for the whole of this year so far. Things hadn't just panned out. And I think also he was talking about how it's probably never been as difficult a time to be a trainer, particularly in Newmarket. We think of Charlie Fellows as a young trainer, but he was rattling off names like George Bowie, Tom Clover, Harry Eustace, George Scott, um, others as well, who are young, up-and-coming trainers who he thinks are maybe now more fashionable than he is. Well, you can add people like Kevin Philippard de Foy, Alice yeah. Haynes, and, you know, Absolutely. and others to that There's list. There's a long list of them, we, we, and we will have missed some out there, Nick. And I think for that reason, Charlie thought that having a big, high-profile two-year-old winner as well, which is important, two-year-olds of the future, and for a new client. Uh, for one of the Mac Tombs. Absolutely, yeah. A horse who'd been bred by Shadwell, but actually races for, for Sheikh Ahmed. And to have a, an owner like that in your yard in your first season, having horses for him, win a race like that, that's a big result for Charlie Fellows. And he was talking like a man who knew it was a big result. And Sandrine won the Lennox Stakes for Andrew Balding and David Provert. She was a pretty big prize given how good a two-year-old she was. A, a, a notable blow for the three-year-olds. I mean, I spent quite a bit of yesterday's podcast talking about holes being blown in the, in, in the three-year-olds. Yeah, I was, I, was a, I was all over sacred for that race yesterday, Nick. And I think maybe had this race taken place on Friday or Saturday when we could probably expect quicker ground... Um, she might have had more chance. But, yeah, big, big win for Sandrine. She'd not had a great start um, to the season. We knew how good she was as a two-year-old last season. Um, had an excellent campaign last season, in fact. Um, but hadn't gone as well this year. I don't think it was a particularly strong Lennox Stakes, truth be told. I would hope and expect a stronger City of York Stakes, 400 grand at York at the Ebor Festival. But, yeah, a big win for her. And yet another big win for the Probert uh, Balding Alliance. And Andrew Balding will be represented in today's feature race, the feature race of the week, the Sussex Stakes, when last year's winner, the defending champion, Alcohol Free, and the July Cup winner of this year, takes on the undefeated Baid. Could she? Could she? Well, of course she could. Will she? I very much doubt it. Um, my worry with Alcohol Free would be, having done so well back over at sprint distance, will she be slightly buzzed up? for a race like this today having said that the Japanese horse uh, Bathrat Leon goes at the clappers from the front there were two or three in fact for Australia who could go a proper gallop up front but that's going to suit Bayid it was interesting the Queen Anne run Nick it, it, it divided some people I think a lot of us had thought that he would almost do a Franklin win with Imperious Ease by Huge Only Margin. Frankel does Frankel well, and that's the thing and I, I would draw parallels with when when Altior was at his pomp, we were all saying, is this the next sprinter sample? Oh, you're well, not going to compare him to a jumper, surely. I am going to make the point, <laughs> Nick, I'm going to make the point that comparing Altior to Sprinter Sacra was pointless because Sprinter Sacra was probably a once-in-a-lifetime racehorse to perform at that level with the, with the ease he did at his best. You can be an exceptionally good horse and be six, seven pounds below a Sprinter Sacra or a Frankel. 
and Bayid is running to marks in the early 130s. Mm. That is incredibly rare. And it might not be a Frankel figure, but it doesn't mean he's not an outstanding racehorse. I thought he was incredibly efficient and ruthless at Royal Ascot. Maybe not as impressive as he'd been at Newby, but let's not forget when he won the Prix de Moulin, he, wouldn't, he, yeah. hadn't, he hadn't been amazing. I think this race today is perfectly set up for him. We know how good he was at Goodwood last season. It's a track that suits him. There'll be loads of early pace. He should come cruising through under Jim Crowley and win, as I said in the post, you know, he could do a cha-cha-cha to the final furlong and I think he'll still win this race. I think he's a really, really, really good horse. And of course, the, the fascinating thing is the extent to which he's following the Frankel path. His last three races have tracked Frankel's three and four-year-old career. He promises to do the same again at York and the Judd International. It would be wonderful to see him sign off over a mile on a high and really try and firmly establish himself as the world's best racehorse. I know our listeners in Australia probably went away from Royal Ascot thinking, well, how is this horse rated higher than Nature Strip? And that's a debate that will go on and on. But today's a big chance for Bayid to really assert himself. Well, just heading back to yesterday, and one of the great results in the five furlong handicap was the victory of Lord Ridderford. It was his third success at Glorious Goodwood. No mean achievement for any horse, for all that we might laud the achievements of Stradivarius and co a little more loudly. This meant a lot in its in its own way. John Quinn rarely leaves this, this meeting without a winner. His son Sean is holding the fort back at uh, in Malton at the moment and is, is with me now. Sean, just explain why this victory meant quite so much to everyone at the yard. Well, it was it was great for Lord Ridderford because he'd come back earlier this year, Nick, after his second wind operation. He was he was struggling with his wind earlier in the year. It was it was catching him and was was preventing him on on the race course. And uh, he'd just taken a little bit of time to sort of come to himself after that, as horses can. Um, but uh, he's run at Doncaster the time before, had signalled that he he might be about to turn the corner, and we felt that returning to Goodwood, a track that he's often run well at in the past, might just might just eke out that little bit more improvement, and so it did. Goodwood has always been a meeting your your family's been very fond of. I'd imagine your earliest memories are when you were very very young, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I can remember we probably had far less horses and. Uh, it, but it still, it still meant a, a, an awful lot, and uh, took 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 us a long time to, to break our glorious Goodwood duck. I think Fantasy Believer won the Stewards Cup Consolation race, maybe in the early 2000s. I can remember having plenty of seconds and thirds before that. That meant a huge amount. And the last the last sort of decade or so has been been very good to us down there. And you've got important runners later in the week as well. Most notably, Mr. Wagyu in the in the Stewards Cup. This horse has been nothing short of a revelation. How do you think he's improved so much at such an advanced age? I really don't know, um, because as you say, it's very unusual for a horse to find his improvement at the age of six and seven. Uh, but but he thrives on racing, and he's, he's a horse. He, he loves life. He, he comes out of his stable every morning bouncing, and maybe it's maybe it's taken us a, a while to, to find his ideal regime. I, I don't know, but um, we're not overly hard on him at home when we try and keep a little bit of petrol in the tank for the race course and, and that seems to work and Titan Rock is a horse you're, you're running today uh, I know he's not drawn very well but he, he looks quite well handicapped and he's, he's won at Glorious Goodwood before as well he has, he won his, his maiden at the, the Glorious Goodwood meeting as a two year old he won the seven furlong maiden down there he loves the track he's a little bit better than he's been able to show his last two starts and he's been training well but he's burst out in stall 19 over seven furlongs and that looks like Mission Impossible from there, in my opinion. 
Sean, what news of Highfield Princess? We haven't seen her since she finished an excellent sixth in the Platinum Jubilee prior to which she'd won the Duke of York. What are the plans for her? Yeah, she, she's in good form. We we purposefully missed the um, the July Cup. We felt uh, on quick ground in a, in a hot field. She might just have a harder race than, than we'd like. And uh, John Fairley, her owner, was always keen to try and target the Morris de Geese with her. So that's that's been the plan since Royal Ascot, and, and all been well. She'll she'll go to good uh, to Deauville rather next weekend for the for the Morris de Geese. And, and you, you feel that she's in, in good nick. I know you say she's a filly who needs racing, who needs plenty of graft and thrives on having races back-to-back. You're not too worried about having had a break? No, uh, it's a good point you make. She does thrive on, on her racing, but um, we're not too worried. She's training well, and um, it's, it's not absolutely impossible, Nick. As Laurie's whiz by me here, um, it's not impossible that she might head for the Nunthorpe only 12 days after that because she is a filly that does thrive on her racing, but we'll, we'll jump through the first uh, hoop first, I suppose. Well, important stallion news uh, came through to us yesterday uh, and was reported yesterday afternoon that uh, Golden Horn, the Derby winner of 2015, would move to uh, Overbury Stud, the stud that's run by Simon Sweeting and has been the home to some wonderful stallions over the years. Cave Tara, Latley, the very good two-year-old sire, our dad. Uh, a majority interest or an interest has been purchased by Dashgrange Stud's Jane McGiven. Um, and Golden Horn ran for m- those years, of course, in the colours of Anthony Oppenheimer, who was also responsible for breeding and owning Cracksman, who's made a spectacular start at Stud. So I thought he'd be just the, the man to talk to now. Anthony, first of all, um, just tell us what's, the, what's happening with Golden Horn. Well, Golden Horn, um, he's actually done, done well last year. He cut 150 mares, but unfortunately, he's not getting in the top. He's not getting any produce racing class. And I think that um, he covered, what, 150 mares last year, and he made a small profit. But this year, we, this coming year, we don't think he'll manage to cover quite so many because I don't think all those people will want to go back to him because national hunt breeders don't often go back a second time immediately anyway we'll see um, I think that the feeling was that he might be better off being handled by a top stud like Overbury which was used to national hunt horses basically uh, whereas Dahlia is um, more thoroughbred so we just thought that time had moved you know we can't do anything about his produce they are quite they're quite good and they win races and there are a lot of them over a hundred, but they're not getting top class, and therefore you're not getting the good mares. And so we felt that the time had pointed out that he would be an actual hunt stallion, probably better than a see. But that's why we decided jointly with, with Dahlia, of course, to move him on. Um, but he's not going to leave England, and um, we think he's going to go a very good home but perhaps people more used to handling national hunt mares than Dali. And, and do you still believe that he's capable of producing an absolute top-notcher on the flat, or have you slightly lost the faith? Well, I, 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 I'm sure over a mile and a half. I mean, we, we are astonished that he hasn't got, you know, that his produce don't have that little pace that he had. But it's one of those things, genetically. And I don't think he's looks like getting a group one winner um, in the next crop, but we'll see. But I, I, I mean, even so, we're at Overbury, 
Yeah, people can, we can use him, and we will use him, and um, people can use him there. So you would still urge people to use him as a flat stallion. His percentage of horses rated over 90 is very good, but as you were saying, you know, breaking through to that very top level has, uh, has proved tricky. Of course, he shares lineage with, with, with Cracksman. Uh, Cracksman's made what some would describe as a surprisingly fast start at stud. I'm, I'm sensing that might not have come as a surprise to you. Would I be right? No, I think you're, you're not right. I, I, I always thought Cracksman might be the better of the two because there's much more pace in the female line of Cracksman. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so we've been, I don't say, we've been a bit surprised to see as we had seven winners, um, individual winners of nine races so far, including a listed race. So we, we don't think the best are out yet. So we're just a little bit stunned by the results um, because Cracksman himself well, it took time to come to himself, basically. And um, there was no way that, well, we thought he, he was, could win over five or six, seven furlongs. Um, so we are surprised and pleasantly surprised, to tell you the truth. He's by Frankel. He's the best horse by Frankel to be standing at stud as well. And one of Frankel's great strengths as a stallion is his ability to sire horses at a range of, of distances. But he's really come into own his own with horses over middle distances. And do you anticipate the same with, with Cracksman? Yes, I mean, I, I think we do. Um, it, 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 genetics are always, a, you know, a puzzle. If only we knew some of the answers, it'd be much better. But um, no, I, I think that this horse looked pretty exciting at the moment. I mean, look, they can't count your chickens before they sort of hatch, but um, I, I wasn't surprised, let's put it that way. We knew he had a very fast female line. And there was one of the mares in the line that Jeff Rag trained who said he, he was by, by far the best um, three-year-old filly. Um, better than the one, the one we had, which won the coronation stakes. So maybe that's pacing. Broke a leg, unfortunately. She broke a leg, but she recovered to go into into start. But she only had about five foals. So I mean, maybe the, the, that's the pace coming right through the female line. Well, it's it could be quite exciting, I suppose. He could be very exciting, and he's got another runner today in the Molcom Stakes at a big price. Anthony, thanks for talking to me, and I wish you all the best with them both, obviously. All right, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Well, thanks to, uh, thanks to all my guests today. Lee is still with me, and the joy of doing this podcast at festival meetings is that Neil Phillips just bowls up with a load of wine in the middle of the morning. It's not just the exclusive preserve of Lydia Hislop. Um, <laughs> Phillips, what are, you do- what, are you, what are you uncorking for us today? Right, we're heading off to Provence, Nick, Whispering Angel. I've just been there. Have you? Well, you, you know all about it then. You know all about how beautiful the rosés are then. And I thought we'd have some Whispering Angel from Sacha Lachine. Um, bought Chateau Desclon in 2006, launched in 2007. And look how popular Whispering Angel's become now. And I'm also going to show... Why, okay, why is it so popular? Is it a clever bit of branding or is it actually nicer than all the other... Provencal rosés. I think it's a really good Provencal rosé. I think there's a few others as well. And I just suddenly think people love drinking rosé, not in the summer, but also all year round as well. And this is a classy bit of winemaking. And, you know, we love it on holiday, don't we? And I'm sure you enjoy quite a lot next last minute holes and 
enjoying it now. I, I, I was actually quite good on my holidays, but did enjoy some. Um, Lee, this will this will sort you out. You've got to you've got to knock together a, a pithy <laughs> a pithy piece about Peter Savile and racing politics for the Racing Post. Now this is not necessarily going to help that process, but thank In, you, Neil. Inspiration. <laughs> yes. Um, if the editor of the Racing Post is listening, it, it, you know it's, it's it's all right for some of the great writers of our time to get a little bit of inspiration from the grape. It is very nice as well. Um, like you, I have holidayed in Provence, and um, a Provencal rosé is a beautiful thing indeed, um, and that is that is very lovely. I feel I should be doing a Julie Goulden and giving it rather more commentary, but I'll, I'll leave that to, to Neil. That's the second Julie Goulden mention we've had on this podcast in in recent months. I think I better I better leave it there, otherwise the man who the man who presents it when I'm not here will never do it again. Um, Neil, you're just having a problem getting yeah, your cork out there. I have a problem there, Nick. I'm trying to be too hasty. I've fun. never seen you snap no, a cork. No, I know. I should not do that. I'm trying to be... I wasn't firing the right procedure there, you know? Just going to rescue myself here. Just in terms of the whispering angel you taste then, Lee was just saying it's very, very nice. Very elegant, lovely strawberry fruit and yep. peach there as well. Yep. And it's just a really elegant style of wine. I love the acidity as well that you get on the finish set too and just probably not opening conventionally there but there was a good sound for us there. Oh, it's, a, been, it's been a stressful morning but it's, it's easing away now. <laughs> well here we go. We're just, you know, I bring you some lightness here. You know, this, um, We've got Rock Angel here. By the way guys, you might need to just enjoy what you have in your glass already because I'm going to show you. Is that a polite way of saying <laughs> neck it? <laughs> Yes, go for it. Oh, right, Lisa. <laughs> okay. There's no that's way I'll get through 2,000 words a day, Neil, <laughs> if I have You'll be next to Provence. <laughs> right. That's no. very nice. <laughs> now, this is Rock Angel. Now, important piece here is, so the four grapes, we've got Grenache, we've got Syrah, we've got Sanso, we've got a white grape called Vermentino, which is in the, in the Whispering Angel, also in Rock Angel. But this Rock Angel actually has a little bit of time in oak. And if you thought about talking about Provence rosés, you'd actually talk about 30% of this wine being aged in oak barrels. So it's a bit more intense, a bit more food friendly, bigger flavours on the palate. When you mentioned Vermentino, so I was on holiday in Tuscany two weeks yes. ago. I'm pretty sure a lot of the white I was drinking there was Vermentino. Yes, Would that right. be right? Yeah, that's right. Right on the buzzer there, Lee Motter's head, you know, Vermentino. Exactly. That's what you get. Bit of white in those. I think I, I, I prefer this, I think. I'm not on message, am I? Well, that's, that's really nice. <laughs> yes, it is. It's just a bit fuller. Bit, and then you, you've got almost some of this more herbaceous character coming through. You pick up some of that red fruit, some and that little tinge of oak in there is really nice. And if you thought about actually having a Provence rosé like this, with that sort of structure, bring out some seafood and let's, let's enjoy. I love rosé, but I, 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 I think sometimes you can drink it and for you're almost drinking more like a glass of pop <laughs> as opposed to a wine. Yeah. And that feels lovely. Yeah, it is lovely and dry. Um, perfect. Neil Phillips, thank you very much. Uh, Lee Motter's head, have you got a tip for me for day two of Glorious Goodwood? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do, Nick, and I'm just trying to remind myself now with a head that's been clouded by uh, beautiful rosé. Yeah, the 150, the mile and a half handicap, the race, whenever I reference the mile and a half, three rolls handicap. Is that the Extel? No, that, that's the mile and a quarter uh-huh. one. This is the one that was won by Pilsudski on his um, way to greatness. Yes. yes. Um, and on this occasion, I'm going to go with horse number two, Maxwood, trained by Hugh Morrison, ridden by Ryan Moore, uh, run a nice enough race in the Hampton Court stakes. I think he's quite well handicapped. So Maxwood in the 150 at Goodwood. Maxwood in the 150 at Goodwood for Lee, a race which now, 23 and 24, would be a premier race. We'll leave you with that. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. <laughs>